does history stop and your story begin? What's behind the mayonnaise, next to the ketchup, and to the left of the coleslaw? How much backstory should I include in my story? Does soil build up in a magical dead zone? And why is there a croissant in my BLT? I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast. there i'm carrie i'm josh and i'm monica and this is the world builders podcast because you can't build a planet without a plan in this podcast we your hosts explore settings in genre fiction by crafting them here and now for you our listeners last time we concluded our uh, exploration of the peoples of alteran with the silva and now we'll start to look at the history of alteran and how that history shaped the people who live there Cool. So now we know a lot about the different races. Um, I assume there are also humans as well. Yeah, you can't really uh, have too many planets out there that haven't been contaminated with the delightful little pest known as people. (laughs) Can you tell when this episode was recorded? (laughs) (laughs) I know, let's not start a riot. But let's... We are, we are we are escaping from the realities of life by exploring genre fiction though. So let's let's talk about the the humans a little bit. We escapism. Yeah. It is healthy in small doses. As long as you make sure to come back. Yes. Um So we've talked a lot about these really extraordinary other races that inhabit the continent of Altairan. And then we have the humans. Is there anything that makes them stand out? Or what's their niche? And where, sort of, where did that come from? What is their place in in the planet? Yeah, they're just kind of there. At first, they, uh, let's be fair, in pretty much every and all setting out there, under the sun and among the stars and behind the moon and inside the moon and adjacent to the mayonnaise behind the ketchup and to the left of the coleslaw. You're you're going to run into people because that is the stock standard easiest way to make a connection with your readership or your viewership or your what have you is, hey, these are like me. Yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine putting yourselves in the shoes of a big rock person who doesn't like people. I mean, sometimes it might be easy to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who doesn't like people. Sounds like a great (laughs) time right now. I don't know what you're talking about. I know. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that there are plenty of our listeners who identify very strongly with music-loving rock people who don't want to be around humans or plant people who just want to make things grow. <laughs> that is very true, but it is very difficult to imagine what living as one of those those other races might be like. I would say that I would be very sad if I had to photosynthesize because food is tasty. Food is tasty, but I really want to photosynthesize. I want to get something out of my sunbathing except other than a sunburn and more freckles. Yeah, as I say, other than cancer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> What, you mean you don't like turning lobster red and then going back to pasty? I actually 
I've been burned so bad that I turned purple. So I live in Florida and I haven't had that happen. Yeah, I I have had gotten second degree burns on my back from sunburn. Ow. Yeah. So needless to say, I bathe in sunscreen now. Um <laughs> dunk, dunk tank of sunscreen. It was not a pleasant week. Um, I had to sleep on one of those pillows that has arms, uh, but like backwards. (laughs) Like I had to hug the pillow with the arms out beside me and my arms around the back of the pillow. And that was the only way I could sleep. (laughs) Yeah. My mom fell asleep on a blow up raft once on the, uh, the shorelines of Florida where she grew up and, uh, then her mom decided to be a peach and pop the blisters. Oh, <gasps> ouch. Yeah. Yeah. See, I fell asleep in the shade. Um, and shade moves uh, when, mm, when time passes. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Darn that pesky sun in its <sighs> orbit around our planet. <laughs> so there's our uh, sun-inflicted body horror segment of this episode. <laughs> well, I mean, let's be fair. If people on the internet don't know by now, the sun is a deadly laser. Sun inflicted body horror sounds like a really good name for a metal band. Metal band, like death metal, yes. That was exactly what I was just thinking. So back to the topic on hand. Humans are squishy and extremely. And you mentioned before that at least in the beginning of their time on Altairan, they didn't really have their own niche, their own specialty. Which probably meant that they got kicked around quite a bit in the early days of cultural and societal development. Yeah, when you're small and pink and squishy and your neighbors are giant and hulking and can rip trees off their roots or meld seamlessly into the mountainsides or just flat out grow a forest shut in front of you, which I mean, didn't happen too often, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, Yeah. It really sucks to be small and pink and squishy. <laughs> Unless you're Kirby. Then it's awesome. Then it's perfect. But Kirby has the added ability of having of being able to suck up its enemies. So yeah. But I mean to be fair, there also were, I'm sure, plenty of small and brown and squishy and small and, you know, other colors and squishy besides just pink. Well, yes, but the sentiment remains. <laughs> yeah, the, the sentiment remains. Human beings are not known for their physical fortitude. They're known for their adaptability and refusal to give up. As they are in most fiction. So you would have had Joe Farmer coming in after the own ripped up the trees to plant a farm there. You may have had Steve really good at flint napping try and make a bargain with the Silva of, hey, can we live with you guys and I'll make stuff for you? Or you may have had Sam Logger get a forest grown shut on him because he wouldn't stop cutting down the trees. Yeah. We're persistent little buggers. What can we say? (laughs) But yeah, for the most part, early humans, much like us, were extremely nomadic hunter-gatherers. Until they learned the magic of farming. And even then, I'm sure that there were some who just gave up on farming because the own kept taking them. Yeah, that would make sense. If you move around, like, because, yeah, because at that point, it's not really a predator-prey relationship, but something weirdly akin to it. 
so if you have a farm and people keep coming and and taking all of your food i imagine that not all own would burn it down because then you've burned down the land of the guy who grows the food you keep taking and that's a stupid thing to do <laughs> yeah you just have to watch out for his fearsome battle cry of my cabbages <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but but then he gets to set up Cabbage Corp eventually. Yeah. Just has to be persistent about it. So yeah, so you'll have some farmers who are going to be persistent about it and keep growing and try to find other ways of defending themselves or of keeping at least some of their food to themselves. So I imagine some of them probably got very good at building cellars in places where there weren't earth shells to be bothered by such things um to hide their food or you would have had some who decided heck it i'm gonna go back to wandering around because it's easier it's a big place maybe we'll get lucky and just happen to wander places where they aren't <laughs> yeah if someone is preying on you you move <laughs> yeah yeah it's not like there were local authorities to call i mean there are local authorities to call it's the people who are taking your stuff Ooh. That got a little more topical than I think we intended. <laughs> I didn't mean for it to. I meant that the own were kind of the apex for a while. Yep. Yeah, depending on who you ask, still are. <laughs> I mean, they are, they are, they seem to be the most violent of the races. So. The most prone to aggressive behavior, let's say. Yeah. I suppose that's fair. <laughs> so, but we did. What happened to change that? Well, again, we're kind of stubborn. We do occasionally like to dig our heels in. And there might have been some people who were just like, you know what? I'm really tired of moving every damn season. Maybe we'll just stick it out for a little while. Maybe we'll try amassing some numbers. You know, make sure that there's enough of us that if one or two own swing by to take everything we have, maybe we won't lose absolutely everything. So we'll start trying to make little, you know, little groups, you know, gatherings, maybe, maybe a village. Start trying to figure out structures, maybe some spiky fences to, you know, no, those don't really work in keeping them up. We'll just break them down. <laughs> I mean, if they can pull a tree off its roots, then uh, spiky fence is not going to do much. Do its peak. Yeah. <laughs> might, might slow them down a little bit. You can, <laughs> you can use them in some kind of javelin throwing contest that you'll inevitably lose. And then maybe some of them learned, learned to challenge them to something and to outsmart them. Maybe. Yeah, early humans weren't terribly bright yeah i mean i was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt i tried that too <laughs> we saw how that went <laughs> but as tends to happen they kept trying and they kept trying and every once in a while they'd get a little bit of help you know, particularly favorable, defensible rock outcroppings in their village that they could, you know, maybe try to hold out on or maybe hope that there might be somebody living in one of those rock outcroppings that doesn't like the own either and just give them the boot. 
maybe try settling near a forest and hoping the people who live in the forest are better at holding off the own than the squishy pink brown tan pasty what have you people are and the neighbors try to help because nobody really likes the own they just kind of tolerate them to various degrees unless you're the silva but the silva like everyone and then as you know tends to happen somebody got really 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 fed up a tribe tried pillaging this guy's farm he worked really hard at it he was really proud of it there weren't any own in the area when he started he had a nice family everything was pretty good until they showed up and started trying to take his stuff and his farm was doing pretty well, so he wasn't, you know, too terribly upset about having to surrender most of his crops. As long as he had enough to keep his family going, he was fine. Sure, he couldn't, you know, send any off to neighbors or anything like that, you know, to help make their lives a little easier. But he had enough to get by himself, and his family had enough, so it wasn't a huge great loss. And then one of the own decided, mm, you know... For a small squishy thing, your daughter's kind of cute. I think I'm going to take her to and oh. Crap. Turns out, as tends to happen, when you push a man far enough, he tends to break. And this particular farmer, Zan, he broke one day when they tried to take his daughter away from him. And depending on which historians you ask and, you know, whereabouts in the world that they lived, like, for instance, far-off desert continent that, you know, winds up being important a little bit later on, the beam of light that shot out of the Earth that day was pretty spectacular. Almost as spectacular as the literal fortress that rose up out of the ground following it. Because when that man was pushed far enough... He figured out how to tap into the lay energy really, really, really deeply. And kind of became something slightly more than squishy pink human in the process. Right. Absorbing that much, that absorbing and or using that much energy, you would assume he would, he would change or it would change him somehow. And it did. He very quickly became very intelligent and hence the sudden and immediate fortress and kicking every single own off of what very quickly became his land in a matter of seconds and that near instantaneous transition was the inception of the first zenithi kingdom because suddenly there was this great stone fortress out of nowhere that was very easily defended by the man at the top of the tower who controlled it all. I I hear what you did there. And for the first time in ever, there was a place for the squishy things that was safe. Where they didn't have to worry about the own anymore. And so they came from all across Alteran to this place, this wondrous Massive, sprawling, beautifully constructed fortress. Especially, so that's, it's really interesting because that, that shows you how good the word of mouth is. 
um, how, how other people are drawn to this place because of such a large magical event, but also that there were a lot of people who needed that security uh, in their lives. Yeah, part of it may have been the people who remained hunter-gatherers going around telling everyone, but also how visible was that beam of light? Could someone across the continent have seen it and said, I have to pack up and move anyway. Let's see what that is. I don't know what that is, but I want to go there. <laughs> yeah, because let's be honest, that's also human nature, right? I don't know what that is, but I'm a touch it. Or I don't know what that is, but I'm a lick it. <laughs> I wonder if this is edible. It is, or it is... <laughs> and yeah, all of a sudden, there were a lot of people gathered in one place, and they were safe. They didn't have to worry about any more own raids, because, go figure, one person who knew what they were doing with the lay energy all of a sudden was more than enough for the own tribes, who... And I don't think we touched on this too much. Really not fantastic at doing the same. They've got some level of proficiency because most things do that live in the vicinity of said energy source. But in the great hierarchy of lay energy channelers on the continent of Alteran, they are soundly at the bottom. Because <laughs> they, they, I mean, it makes sense because they wouldn't want to spend the time to learn how to use it when they can just take something from someone else who is already using it. Also probably has something to do with the fact that they can't keep it. But that's a discussion for another day. But there's a major problem with getting a lot of people together in one place. And that's people tend to make more people. A lot. And sure, we've got this magical, fantastic super fortress that defends against the own raids. But it's going to start filling up when everybody on the continent wants to live there. So maybe we need to spread ourselves out a little bit. But, you know, that wouldn't be great because... Uh, Mm. Yeah, Super Fortress is kind of great. And so Zen had the fantastic idea that he was going to help some people out. And so, taking inspiration from the circlet of crystalline structure that grew around his own head when he so deeply accessed the lay energy, he made four crowns and gifted them to who he felt were the four most worthy of the Zenethi people, as they came to refer themselves, of also being leaders of guiding and shaping the course of Zenethi development from that point forward, as he had rather suddenly been somewhat forcibly elected to the position of, depending on how you want to look at it. I don't think it was his intention. He really just wanted to keep his daughter safe. And so became the four enlightened, risen above the average ranks of the squishy various skin tones, who embarked off in the, well, not the four cardinal, but whatever sits between the cardinal directions, kind of like an X shape on ye old standard compass rows across the continent and established their own little nooks in the world and made their own nice settlements of, you know, not quite super fortresses, but still pretty defensible to take some of the population burden off of the main kingdom. And for a while, things were pretty great. We had societal development. We had intercardinal i like it thank you for knowing that uh that was research we we just we just muted and researched that's yeah uh basically kind of sort of a renaissance period 
to uh, draw a real world parallel where suddenly there were intelligent people and the intelligent people started to, you know, to educate the less intelligent people and the less intelligent people became more intelligent and started educating the even less intelligent people. And well, Jimbo, there's no hope for, we'll just leave him be off as an old thing. But all of a sudden the squishies had society. They had culture. They had things that they were own. They could do things that weren't just, you know, fighting every day for their lives, trying to get enough, you know, wild animal and edible fruit and whatnot to survive. They could actually do things like, you know, art, music, study, research. And uh, it was pretty sweet for a while. Yeah, that's that's what that's what societies tend to do when when they have when they feel secure, they start looking beyond just the the necessities and look at things like art and culture and and things like that yeah i mean hey we don't have to fight for our lives anymore um let's enjoy ourselves what do you want to do today uh i I don't know um well i mean we don't need to fortify our structures with this you know lumpy stuff from the ground but you know we can make bowls and crud with it um or try to make something else with it hey sculpture And it's nice to draw that real world parallel too. It's it's nice to give the readers, or well, I guess you wouldn't be reading this part, um, but it's nice to give people something to connect connect to in our own history that they may know a little bit about, um, even if it works slightly differently because there's magic. Um, and in this case, really, the magic is just kind of a hyper catalyst. Right, right. It's the same exact progression, just a lot quicker because something boosted it along. Right. Mm-hmm. And you've also got the magic to play with as additional, as as an additional canvas, so to speak, for development and exploration. And by the way, do these people have names? These four enlightened. I guess they might have. They seem relatively important. A little bit. They certainly kind of thought a lot of themselves when they were selected. Spoiler warning. I mean, if the person you perceive as your god king decides to make you a demigod queen, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And they did. It was um, two sets. Two guys, two girls. They did. I mean, their, their names were all right. You had, you know, Gar. Pretty, uh, pretty basic, straightforward. Hey, this is a pretty basic concept of language name. And then you had, you know, like um, Del Canis. That's kind of, you know, a little bit fancier, a little bit more hoity-toity. Might have been slightly uh, higher on the proverbial hunter-gatherer pole or what have you. And it kind of goes from there. Uh, that was the one. It was Roth. And, uh, oh, yeah, there was Vask. Vask was all right. Um, among them probably wound up doing mostly the best for themselves. Yeah, so, um, as tends to happen sometimes when you're developing society and you give people power, uh, it can, um, unfortunately go to their heads a little bit. These, uh, these four sparkling individuals, the enlightened, did all right for a while. Um, a really long while. They were around for over a hundred years or so. Historical records from that time frame are a little, uh, a little squidgy partly because of their own fault. So two of them, Gar and Del Canis, got into a little bit of a spat with each other. Because 
like a lot of people, they decided to specialize. They wanted to be known for something, make a, you know, cut a swath, a niche of history for themselves. And so all four of the Enlightened really kind of adopted a specialty, just kind of the things that they liked the most that they figured out they could do and adopted it as their thing. You know, oh, Gar, he's one of the Enlightened. Okay, that's cool. But you know what sounds a lot cooler? Gar, the Enlightened of Automation. Because he really liked making things move on their own. He thought that was pretty cool. And you know, I'm kind of inclined to agree. Just a little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I assumed you would agree. Notably, his, uh, his personal favorite and considered greatest slash most terrible invention, these little things called Garricks, kind of uh, robots, golems, constructs, what have you. They were pretty cool. He decided, hey, why worry about, you know, needing soldiers patrolling the streets of a city? We could just make something to do it for us. Uh, automated police force, if you will. Peacekeepers. Something that can fight off the owns if they're stupid enough to try and attack the city in the first place. Cool beans. We like this. Yeah, why risk your own people's lives if a robot can just be rebuilt if it gets damaged? Exactly. No loss of life. Everyone can focus on doing the things that they want to do instead of fighting. Not a terrible idea. Really, it wasn't. For now. Well, yeah, for now. And then you had Delcanis, who was of a similar school of thought, but instead of, hey, I really like making things move on their own, it was, you know, I really like making things. And so instead of building something that could accomplish a task in lieu of a living thing, they opted instead to make a living thing for a task. Oh, hey, all these people are gathered in, you know, one place. Uh, a lot of trash is going to start piling up eventually. Mm, okay, let's just make something that eats the trash. Okay, that'll work. Streets are clean. Everybody's happy. Nobody has to worry about stepping in uh, the muck, so to speak. <laughs> Nothing could ever possibly go wrong with this. I mean, after all, they only eat trash. Sure. For now. But the problem is, when you have two people who are very, very proud of the things that they make, eventually they're going to start to thinking, well, the things that I make are better than the things that they make. Especially when there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, exactly. And Ro Vosk and Roth didn't really have that same overlap that Gar and Delcanis did? Yeah, not really, no. Vosk kind of liked taking things that already existed and making them better. You know, a little bit of augmentation here and there. Not just, you know, oh, hey, I'm going to make something brand new. It's just I'm, I'm going to take something that already exists and makes it better. That sounds like a pretty cool idea. And then Roth was really kind of out there being the enlightened of ideation, which really just meant, you know what's really cool? Coming up with new stuff. <laughs> Thinking about stuff. So there's almost, there's almost synergy with Roth and Vosk as opposed to the direct conflict of Gar and Delcanis. Because Roth might think of something and then say, hey, Vosk, I'm kind of stuck on this. What do you think? And Vosk could be like, tweak this, this, and that, add this feature, take this one away. And suddenly you've got this life-changing invention. Uh, pretty cool. But yeah, unfortunately for history, they're not really the uh, the showcase, so to speak. because. And, well, they got along pretty all right. They didn't cause many problems. 
Gar and Delcanis, on the other hand, decided, uh, you know what? I can prove that my things are better than your things. And they got themselves in a little bit of a tiff. And by a little bit of a tiff, I mean an all-out war. I was going to say, it sounds like it was more, more than a tiff. <laughs> I mean, it could have started out as a friendly competition, you know, BattleBot style, your fighting creature versus my fighting robot. Let's take bets on which one is stronger. Wait, I don't like that I lost. Rematch. Hang on, this one wasn't quite right yet. Hang on, they're designed to work as a platoon, you know. I can't really just evaluate the battle prowess of one of them. And so on and so forth. And yeah, they wound up getting into pretty much an all-out war between their two kingdoms. And uh, kind of pretty much blew everything up in the process. Because... It generally doesn't happen too often because nobody's that dumb. Or at the very least, nobody's body can survive trying to be that dumb. Zan managed somehow, but, well, that's Zan. When you're pulling lay energy from the lay lines, there's only so much a given physical body can handle before something happens, one way or the other. Sometimes it works out all right in Zan's case. Other times you wind up blowing yourself up. Them's the breaks. You're dealing with a very powerful magical energy source on an entire network. Well, unfortunately, they kind of blew out two nodes. The sheer amount of energy that their creations threw at each other and, you know, weaponized, so to speak, wound up blowing out and completely cauterizing two nodes of the network and the entire surrounding line work and destroyed both of their kingdoms utterly in the process. So really, really quick, because I don't think we've discussed this exact term on the podcast, what is a node? So a node is where two or more of the lines of the lay network cross each other and create a little mm, puddle, for lack of a better word, of slightly more concentrated lay energy. Generally a good thing. So they're hubs. Yeah. Okay, moving on. These were decent hubs. They had definitely more than two lines cr crisscrossing through them. It's you know, pretty much why kingdoms were built on top of them, because greater resource access, you know, generally more useful. Yeah, they completely blew those out. And the entire area surrounding suffered for it. Not only were the kingdoms themselves eradicated, pretty much wiped off the map, but because the damage to the network was so severe, the lay energy refused to return to that area. The channels were completely cauterized. And as you may mention, may imagine, excuse me, as we've mentioned previously, there's the word said in structure I was looking for. When an entire planet has gone its entire existence, making use of this energy network that crisscrosses it and fosters the things that live upon it, when that energy isn't there, it tends to suck. What happens to plains when rivers dry up and stop running through them? They die. <laughs> I mean, I know that was rhetorical, but they die. Well, I, I, I was actually hoping that you would answer that question because that kind of... <laughs> I mean, that is my area of interest. Uh, I So it's like, so we were talking about the seasons before um, a while ago. So in the what would be like the winter season, there is less lay energy to go around, correct? Kind of. 
it's still pre- it's still pretty prevalent. It's just part of the natural seasonal cycle, but at the end of winter, it does just go away completely. But that's only for a limited amount of time. Right, and not forever in these exact spots. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like that, but on a permanent scale. Yeah, and it turns out the permanent scale really tends to screw things over. It's one thing when you can count on that energy coming back eventually and just have to survive through that dark season. Yeah, Florida is super green, but we do have a dry season in the winter months, but we stay green. And uh, yeah, there was one other major problem with that whole uh, catastrophe, because let's face it, it was pretty catastrophic. You know, not only were a lot of innocent lives lost in the process because of the big boom, not only was the entire network in that area completely cauterized and rendered moot, but Zan wound up being really, really really disappointed with his kids he had selected those four to be you know pillars of the building society and community that he had inadvertently created he had wanted them to help foster the development of the zenethi people as they called himself in his honor going forward for you know the foreseeable future because again these guys lived well over 100 years there wasn't really any telling just how long they were going to last because of what they had become in their enlightenment and these two couldn't get over very petty and arguably immature traits of humanity and blew everything the hell up. Because again, they are humans. That's Mm -hmm. overcoming your nature is very difficult sometimes. And it made dad really, really, really sad to say the least. And disappointment is worse than anger. (laughs) Yeah, because at that point, dad said, you know what? I'm done. And in one fell swoop, every person, man, woman, and child, and you know anything resembling a pet or what have you, even the potted plants, were summarily deposited just outside of the walls of his kingdom. And that super magnificent, glorious fortress and bastion of Zenethi culture, gone. In a snap as if it had never been there in the first place. The ground wasn't even disturbed from where it had been sitting. As quickly as it came, so it went. Because he was done. And as you may imagine, when, as Carrie mentioned, a god-king, as they saw him, is the central pillar of your society and everything that is good and right with your culture and something you can always count on to be there and protect you is suddenly gone, that creates... A power vacuum. And before we get to the power vacuum, I did have a quick question. What were Zan and Roth and Vosk doing during the war? I imagine they were, were they trying to stop it? Were Roth and Vosk maybe just focused on trying to protect their own people and counting on dad to sort it out? Vosk and Roth tried to be reasonable. Tried to say, you know, hey, probably not the greatest idea guys both of your things are great really there's no real reason to you know compare and contrast so much you know that we don't have to get guys can you kind of please can you Uh, they're not listening and nobody really knows what was going through zan's head when all this was going on because he kind of secluded himself a lot He wasn't seen too terribly often. You could try to talk to him, but he usually had a very off-in-the-stratosphere expression on his face. 
maybe he you know wasn't technically present at the time even though he was physically there it's it's hard to say he was kind of a lot mm-hmm. but you know as tends to be the case explosions tend to draw people's attention yeah what happened to his kids when he vanished the city did he bring his whole family with him nope he packed up his things and he left and Fosk and Roth were left with the shambles of the kingdom he had created. I was also asking about his biological kids. Mm, Nobody really knows. Again, they lived for a while. So you have... So you have Zan vanishing the city. You have Vosk and Roth left to pick up the pieces. You have the rest of the human population looking for leadership and a lot of people wanting to fill it. Like you mentioned, a power vacuum. Because because we are ambitious. Yeah. And sometimes opportunistic. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how many people were claiming descent from Zen's biological children and saying, hey, I'm his heir. No, I'm his heir. I'm the best. I should lead us. And guess who wasn't there to set the record straight? Hmm. The one person that they wanted to be there. And Vosk and Roth were away at their own kingdom so much that they probably wouldn't recognize Zan's bio kids. Because we would probably be looking at his grandkids or his great grandkids by now. And they only knew his first generation kids. Exactly. So as you may imagine... Things went from really, really, really good for the Zenethi people to not so great. Basically, it went from Renaissance to the Dark Ages. Kind of the wrong way you want to be progressing society. Got guys, can you? No, they really can't, can't they? Nope. And there's a reason why you don't have a whole lot of accurate historical records from this general time frame of when all this happened. Well, a lot of it got vanished. <laughs> A lot of it got vanished, a lot of it got blown up, and in the ensuing power struggle, a lot more things got blown up. Mm-hmm. Because, hey, we're an advanced people now. We can use magic. We studied under some of the enlightened. We know how to do things. We know what's best for everyone, said every tyrant ever. <laughs> Said every person ever who saw themselves as a liberator and turned into a tyrant. Yeah. Things weren't good for a really, really long time. They eventually settled down and we got to where we are today, so to speak. You know, we managed to not completely eradicate ourselves in the process. Hooray! But things aren't quite the same, of course. You have a society that had to rapidly develop pretty much overnight and then continue development on this sort of rocket course. And then those rocket boosters blew themselves up or up and vanished. And they had to re-rebuild themselves without uh, three quarters, three-fifths. Yeah, we'll go with three-fifths. The math breaks down better that way. Of their uh, development pillars. Thanks to... uh, Their involvement in the creation of what came to be known as Zan's Lament, this nice massive dead zone surrounding the two blown out and cauterized nodes, Uh, you are in no way, shape, or form to make a golem. 
ever completely illegal. Those things are bad news. They will destroy absolutely everything you know and love. Don't make them. It's illegal. It's against the law. Anywhere, everywhere. Don't do it. That was probably the first world treaty that was signed within the the kingdoms that existed at the time was we agree not to make these things. And if you do, you are guilty of a war crime. Right. Because that is absolutely the only thing that precipitated the events of before was that there were golems. Yep. I mean, it was half of the equation, but again, you run into this funny little problem where history is written by the victors. So if even so much as, you know, two people who were more in tune with Delconis's way of making things instead of making things move like Gar did. Oh, hey, Gar was the bad one. His machines were the problem. And not his attitude about, about the machines, just the machines themselves. It couldn't possibly have been the fault of, you know, one of whatever the things that Delconis made were. Obviously and clearly because, you know, we're the ones who survived and could tell people about it. It was all the Garrick's fault. Right, because you, you, you would jump to that rather than think there is a flaw in someone that you considered demigod-like. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was his fault to begin with, right? I mean, he started everything. He thought his things were greater than the things that our, our people made. So clearly, since everything went boom, it was his fault. And then you have the people from Vosk and Roth's kingdoms where Vosk and Roth are saying, hey, maybe don't make instruments of war and go fighting each other. That becomes corrupt over time because people maybe are prejudiced against the Garricks who are seen only as machines as war, whereas the living constructs are, oh, these are just creatures that can be put to other uses. Yeah, sure. That works. We can go with that couple hundred odd years we don't really know how long because record keeping kind of fell by the wayside while everybody was trying to kill themselves in the power vacuum yeah nothing could possibly go wrong with this no totally not what about all of those uh those golems that still existed or did they still exist did they all kill themselves or not themselves each other you could still find pieces here and there if you dig deep enough because the issue is, is that wouldn't most of them have been on the front lines in the fight? Yeah, because that was kind of what they existed for. Right. We made these things to fight our battles for us so that we wouldn't have to risk our lives. Oh, we blew everything up anyways. Mm. Well, good thing they were all in one place. For the most part. Might have been a few spare here and there. There's definitely not one wandering around a forest or anything. That would be weird. <laughs> nah. But yeah, and if the whole if the whole kingdom was destroyed and you know everyone pretty much was killed, then even the ones that were held back to guard the home front would have been deprived of their power source, destroyed in the explosion, fallen to pieces because there were no more living people left who could maintain them. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Or just stopped moving because they did no longer had orders being put in and just stopped working over time. Right. And then, if they were left in an area that is dead to everything, nobody really wants to go there. So they would end up probably, what, being buried by whatever soil formations start happening? Um, 
Sure. Let's let, let's go with that. Because <laughs> soil formations totally happen in that place. <laughs> Don't you need life for soil formations to happen? Uh, actually, no. You need soil. You need you need life for organic soil material to to accrue, but. Um, most soils are mineral soils, which basically just mean that they're made out of really tiny rocks. So the, so the ruins of the kingdom could have eroded over time and contributed to. Yeah, basically contributed to, to the soil level there. But again, that's if this were earth and whether or not that tracks over to Altaran, we don't know. I mean, obviously I don't know. Josh might. <laughs> I might. It's a possibility. I kind of know a lot of things. I kind of made the place, so you know. Yeah, you know. You're you're doing that you're doing that coy thing, so I'm wondering if we're getting into spoiler territory. It Basically, kind of might also be the fact that in order for things to erode, you kind of need things like wind flow and rain, and that doesn't tend to happen a whole lot in that general area. It's true. Also, other sort of uh, mechanical disturbances of, not that anything would want to live there, but. Not that anything can live there. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's fair. (laughs) Not a whole lot of people. There isn't a whole lot of research on the area because not a whole lot of people are brave enough to go in there long enough to do it. (laughs) So yeah, things sucked for a while. But they eventually sorted themselves out. A few places kind of, you know, rose back up out of the ashes. And we had nice little happy places like the coastline city of Tolvera. You know, society started, you know, kind of shaping itself back up again. And we eventually got this really cool prince. He's a great guy. Yeah, real nice dude. It seems like the 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 people in the kingdoms that were founded by Roth and Vosk tended to do the best for themselves. Because they already had that stability and Roth and Vosk wouldn't have likely died immediately when their immortality was taken away from them. So they would have been able to kind of stabilize things in their own zones, at least. Yeah, they did decently well. Um, To be fair, you don't see much out of the people who, you know, broke down from Vosk's kingdom. They kind of tend to keep themselves in the highlands. It's nice up there. There's no own up there. <laughs> and all of Vosk's research is up there, so why go anywhere else? Right. Yeah, I mean, we're not done making things better here yet. And obviously things have to be perfect here before we can move elsewhere. Also, we've seen what happens when people try to expand their territory and take territory away from other people, and we're not interested in that. We just want to make cool stuff. <laughs> Make cool stuff better. Behold the motto of the Vascari people. We make cool stuff better. So yeah, um, that is a quick and kind of sloppy history <laughs> of the Zanethi people of the Alteran continent. They're not perfect, but they try. Uh, and it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting history that kind of ties in a lot with ours so that we can kind of understand where these people were coming from, the, the decisions that they made, um, and the things that happened to them makes it a little bit easier to understand, I guess. Yep. Yeah. 
human nature is human nature. Yeah, exactly. And it does set a few precedents, as we you know, mentioned on the outset. This is all a world that was built for a tabletop campaign. So, well, why do we have adventurers in the first place? Well, there's no real one singular bastion of humanity anymore. Uh, so it's back to where, you know, the owns can kind of be a problem when they're raiding because we don't have our super fortress to defend them against. But we do kind of know a little bit about magic. So, you know, maybe there's, you know, plucky individuals who like to help and make sure that the own don't destroy everything again. Or, you know, maybe they're of the mindset of, hey, there's ruins of all these other kingdoms that fell over time all over the place. There might be cool stuff in them. Let's look. And lo, you have adventuring hooks. Exactly. And there's so much space to, to explore. Um, maybe you do have some, some really bold adventurers who want to go to the dead zone. Uh, for, I don't know. Is there like an actual term for that, for the, that space that's, that's dead? It's called Zan's Lament. Oh, Because gotcha. it made him very sad. Yeah, so maybe there are bold adventurers who really want to go to Zan's Lament because... It, or particularly stupid ones. Or Yeah, or stupid ones. I mean, whatever. I was, I was giving them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I mean, there were probably both. The question is how many of them actually came back. That's true. That is true. All right, with that, I think we are coming pretty close on time. So we do have one, one question that I thought of while we were recording. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is our fan question of the day, uh, continuing the trend where I ask a bunch of questions because I love asking questions. Um, and this one particularly relates to actual novel writing. Um, how do you guys know when it's time to stop writing history and actually start the story? That's a good question. <laughs> so I am of two minds of this, and it depends on the angle that you're approaching your story from. Sometimes a world and a story will pop into your head and the world is in its current state, in which case you write down what you know of the world in its current state is and then ask yourself, how did we get here? If you want to do the Tolkien thing and just start writing history and see where it takes you, then pick a cool spot it's like if you're right if you're starting with writing the history uh which is personally not usually the way i do it i usually will ask myself how did we get to where i'm starting the story right now um but say you are writing history and you want to pick a spot for your world to begin its stories in find an interesting point in that history that speaks to you that you want to explore more it's like you're looking for a good picnic spot just the right amount of sun, just the right amount of shade, no ants. Or maybe you want ants because it's a good story conflict, whatever. Um. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's kind of what I do. So my, my method is usually finding those points of conflict. Like, where does the conflict happen? Why is it happening? Why is it interesting? Um, because there's a lot of the history that I like specifically, so we'll use Alteran as, as an example. I wouldn't really particularly care to write a story set in the dark ages that we talked about because not a whole lot is going to happen during those dark ages. Um, people are dumb. <laughs> like that's just. People are dumb. There's a lot of conflict. A lot of people are dying. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of people dying and not a whole lot changes um, until we get when until they start to emerge from those dark ages. So maybe like a story set 
where those dark ages kind of end during the enlightenment yeah or during the yeah exactly like and that's something looking for those points of conflict i think is is pretty important um not giving exposition of what happened before it is very important as well because not it's not always important what happened way back in the way back yeah until you get to a certain point in your story yeah, when you give too much backstory that isn't relevant for what you want to be writing at that point in time, it just bogs it down because it's not relevant. It's like, why is this here? Mm-hmm. It's like you order a BLT and there's a croissant in there for some reason. <laughs> Man, that would be good, though. I love croissants. Well, yeah, but like imagine a BLT sandwich and then there's just a croissant in there for no reason. <laughs> now, if it were a BLT made on a croissant, that's fine. But if it's, your, if it's your standard toasted white bread BLT sandwich and somebody just shoves a croissant in there, you're sitting there thinking, why is this croissant here? I don't necessarily hate croissants, but why is it in my sandwich? So, but we don't want to go the other, we don't want to go too far in the other direction either, right? Because I actually saw a really good meme that I wanted to talk about where the Star Wars Twitter posted like, did you know that the First Order da-da-da ships on Exegol, blah, blah, blah. And I, I think it was Elijah Wood responded with, no, we didn't know that. How could we have known that? You know, you want to give your readers enough context to know this is why this is important and this is why you should care about it, which is why I like the amount of legend building that Josh has done here with Zanthuru because it sets the stage. He didn't have to go through decade by decade from the Enlightenment to the present day. This warlord was in power this time, then he was killed by this other guy, and then this lady came and killed all of this guy's kids, and she took over for a while, and things were okay until her sister, you know, stole her girlfriend, and then there was this huge three-way war that went on. You don't, if you want to write that, go for it and throw in references to it here and there where it's relevant because it gives the the look of depth in your world building but you don't need to tell us the entire story over the course of 12 pages before your adventurers start doing what they're doing right you don't want to give your readers a degree in a history lesson in your fictitious world year one of the dark ages day one (laughs) 8 a.m there wasn't enough coffee it wasn't going to be a good day. That's the kind of stuff that you put in your companion book if you enjoy writing that kind of thing. Or you have your historian character or your nerd character throw off, throw out a one-liner about these two people no one's ever heard of to show that depth and then you move on. But what Josh has shown us here in the, ep- in the material that we've covered is enough to show like who these important historical figures are who have kingdoms named after them, who have descendants in this world, who probably have a few swears based on their names. These people were important enough that even after a couple hundred years of everything being terrible and not much things being written down, we still know who they are and what they did. Yes, we have, we know why it's illegal to build an automaton you know, these things are important for interacting in case the adventuring party happens to come across a functioning automaton. Wandering around in a forest. Yeah, if it's perfectly legal to make them, it's not going to be, or if, you know, you can find them everywhere, it's not going to be as big of a deal 
as if, oh, hey, this is a relic that's supposed to be extinct and is also highly illegal. <laughs> you want to make sure you give your readers some background and some context. Yeah. And it's a fine balance to walk. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it's it's a balance to walk where where it's easier or better, really, to show what you're talking about rather than just spend 12 pages, like you said, just listing historical events. Um, Day where... two of the Dark Ages. <laughs> 8 a.m. Killed Jimbo for his coffee. He had decaf. Wish I could kill him again. Yeah, like, for example, in the in the previous um material that was published for Zenthuru, there was the adventuring party did find one of these garricks and one of the party members mentioned hey this is a big deal these aren't supposed to be around but then you also like that's fine that's cool actually i think it was a couple of them that that were doing this but then you get to the city of tolvera where the entire library some of the most foremost scholars in the entire world are freaking the heck out because somebody found a piece of a Garrick. And you have to get special permission from the prince himself to be allowed to even get in the same room and look at it, let alone actually touch the dang thing. Right. And that is a really good example of showing how actually illegal they are without literally just saying hmm, these things are illegal and moving on like how, how illegal and how significant yeah exactly exactly it's kind of a big deal <laughs> oh. but yeah w- back to the original question y- yes when i am writing i do things really really strangely in that i generally know what kind of an ending i want I kind of play it out in my head. Hey, this is really cool. This is going to be a super awesome, strong ending. Now, how the heck do I get here? Yeah. And I kind of start working my way back or jump all the way back to the start and figure out how to connect the dots between the two. Which is funny because we have like the three different time stages, right? Like we have Monica who starts at a point of conflict and works her way forward. We have me who starts in the present and works both forward and back at the same time. And then you have Josh who starts at the end and then has to come up with everything else that got us there. And you know what's great? They're all valid. All valid methods. Yeah, exactly. And I I guess that was kind of the point of the question is that it's really your call. Like where you start your story and stop your history, that's your call. Like you're the one writing the story. Exactly. And this is the important thing to remember about this season of the podcast about the next season of the podcast about our last season of this podcast is we are here to talk about developing worlds in genre fiction but this is how we us three individuals and you know anyone else who happens to stop by in the process goes about it this is not the definitive guide to world building's full stop end of conversation this is how you should world build this is the only way to world build No, this is just how we do it, and we're just here to provide an example. The way you want to write something is not the wrong way if it doesn't line up to the things that we've talked about so far. We're just trying to provide more perspective, because when you have more perspective, you can make better choices. Yeah, and it gives you more, maybe different ways to try it. Maybe you're trying to start at the absolute beginning dawn of time of your world, 
but you really want to write in the in the 23rd century. So write in the 23rd century. There is not any right or wrong way to write except by stealing someone else's writing. Or not writing at all. <laughs> exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> you you read a lot, write a lot, rewrite a lot. That's how you do it. That's it. The, those those are the steps. That's the only thing's not cool is stealing someone else's work and claiming it as your own. Don't plagiarize. Also, if you are lucky enough to have good friends who are also into writing, get them to be your alpha readers because I cannot tell you how valuable it is when I am writing something and Josh or Monica says, hey, dummy, this paragraph makes zero sense. You need to fix it. Do you know that these are two sentences? <laughs> Do you know that this sentence right here completely contradicts something you established three chapters ago? Yeah, or, hey, I don't know what you mean by this thing, or this plot structure doesn't gel with what you've been doing before. Exactly. Well, and, like, the, the other thing, even if you don't have friends or family who like writing or like reading, um, there are so many communities on the internet. Like ours. Which is, exactly, which is how you found us in the first place, using the internet, um, that our community is based on improving writing or, um, or around finding those alpha and beta readers that you're, that you're looking for. So the internet is a magical place. And we do have a writing group on our Discord. It is very small, but you are welcome there. Because that's the thing at the end of the day. The entire point of storytelling is to tell a story. And it's it's fine if it's a way to entertain yourself when you're all by your lonesome, you know, stuck at work trying to escape, you know, the pressures and the troubles of the real world. But at the end of the day, a story is something that's meant to be shared. And so if you're not sharing it with anybody. What are you doing with it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's fine to write a story for yourself. That's fine. If you, you know, want to make something that, you know, only you are ever going to see, there's nothing really wrong with that. But the, the heart and soul of storytelling is to share a story with someone else. Exactly. Even if it's just as a, you know, alpha or beta reader, even if it's something you never intend to publish, you know, a, a story is meant to be seen or heard or spoken or sung or played. And I think that that's a really nice note to wrap up this episode. We will see you next time with an in-depth discussion on magic and channeling this lay energy. You can do magic. You can have anything that you desire. So if you'd like to contact us, you can do so by shooting us an email at worldbuilders at rhinobot.net or by tweeting us at Rhinobot Studios. We'll be glad to answer fans' questions on air, but since we record super well in advance, all the time, every time, please be advised that it may take several episodes for your questions to appear in the show. But rest assured, we will get to them. And that is all for now, folks. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This show is a member of the Rhinobot Studios family. For more information, including show listings, team member bios, social media links, and our community discord, please visit rhinobot.net.